Welcome back, ladies and gents, to episode number 24 of the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. As always, I'm joined by all four of the boys, Jack, DC, and of course, Lawrence. Um, this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to kick it straight off to uh, Q&A questions. Um, I won't be here for the next three weeks, so I decided to try and make them a little bit juicy. So the first one I wanted to pretty much touch over is 1RMs and their tie into bodybuilding training uh, specifically. Because I know when I was starting out in the gym, I would always pretty much like try and hit 1RMs every couple of weeks. So which obviously isn't ideal for bodybuilding. What's your take on that, DC? I think 1RM training is just, it's just, I don't see its utility in, in competitive bodybuilding as something that you would do every week. I feel like if you were to utilize it within the end of like, let's say you ran a couple of training blocks in a row and the premise was that you also had strength goals and those strength goals centered around uh, improving your 1RM or your 3RM, something along those parameters, then perhaps utilizing like a test week would be beneficial. But I think performing a 1RM test weekly is just too much, too frequent. I don't see the utility on how it could benefit your your training. Like we know that there are there are volumes that are recommended, let's say between 10, 10 to 20 sets per muscle group. And although you could say one by one is a set, it's it's not high volume in any any capacity of the word. So and performing it too often, I think would just increase your likeliness of of uh, potentially injuring yourself too. What do you think, Lawrence? I was going to chuck it over to you and your premise of and, and again, what, you know, testing a one RM, we're talking about a rep max, right? So it's like 100% intensity. We're not talking just like a, a one rep at RPE eight or RPE seven. <laughs> it's a one RM. So what are your thoughts, Lauren, Lawrence on that? Yeah, I think from like an injury management perspective, if you look at the research, yes, we know that powerlifting, bodybuilding, even like Olympic weightlifting. So barbell sports, if you want to coin them like that, compared to field-based sports, the amount of injuries that occur on average per a thousand hours are much lower than what we see for field sports. However, like if we think about it logically in where you are likely to see a tissue fail, if it's going to, I think we can all subscribe to the idea that when we're doing that to a very high intensity, like a one RM, which is the most intense something that you can do in the gym. And I guess there we're using intensity in the sports science definition not necessarily just like effort level, which I think often gets confused. And to be fair, I at times use the words interchangeably, but those really high intense lifts where we are at our threshold for performance, those are probably more likely to be injurious than we are doing a set of 15 or a set of 12 or something like that. So, you know, whilst we, of course, like I, I for one, don't like just throwing around the idea that, oh, this is going to hurt you. But I just think that if you're, consistently taking yourself to that level of intensity it's also going to have a pretty big systemic fatigue which is going to affect your overall recovery and overall recovery and training volume and ability to recover between sessions is something that we see that can potentially be a detriment when it comes to developing injuries and i think we also have to think about you know the applicability so if you're a bodybuilder and your primary goal is to put on muscle tissue then seeing progressions in your 1RM is not necessarily meaning that you're getting closer to that goal. So we have all sort of like receptors within the body that monitor the level of tension within muscles. So I believe it's like, I think it's the Golgi tendon organ, if my physiology is correct. 
Um, and they basically monitor the amount of tension that's going through a muscle at that time. And essentially, when we talk about these neural adaptations to lifting, what we're seeing is the threshold for those tendons being activated is just getting a bit higher as we get used to lifting that load. So with a 1RM, especially when you first start training, you could be improving like, you know, 10 kilos in a week, which doesn't mean that you've gained any muscle tissue in that time, but your nervous system has become better suited to moving that weight. And the receptors that would normally tell your body to go, whoa, 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 be careful with that load have now raised their threshold. So it feels easier. And none of that really correlates to hypertrophy. So I just don't think they have a place in someone's program if the sole goal is to develop muscle tissue. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there's benefit from perhaps doing a, a heavy one rep or potentially a heavy set as like a top set prior to your, your working sets, because there is some research surrounding uh, activation potentiation. So and I'm sure Lawrence, you, you, or you boys, maybe you've, have heard of that before, where essentially someone might work up to a heavy one rep, but it's not an RP 10. It's not like a zero reps in reserve. It might be an RP eight, two, two reps in reserve as an example. And then what they might do is essentially a back off where they then perform their working set of five or six reps. And the whole premise of attack, activation potentiation is basically a short-term improvement in performance from a previous muscular contraction. So it's almost like it increases the muscle's readiness to then exert a high level of, of, of force. Uh, that I can see the utility of, of perhaps in the inclusion of a, of a heavy set for something like that. But I mean, that that is much different from a one RM, like a one rep max, zero reps in reserve, RPE 10. Yeah, that's a good point because I've also done like, even before I go to do my heavy sets, like if it might be like a deadlift or an incline bench press, normally I'll pretty much nearly do my working set weight, which I might do for like a five or six RM and just do it for one rep. Just so I know I'm confident under the bar that it's moving smoothly. And I know what it feels like. I just don't want to jump up from 80 to hundred kilos on an incline bench and then just go straight into a working set. And I feel like it does help like what you were saying, like, you know, you get comfortable with the weight, you move it very fast for one rep, you know that you control it. And, you know, I guess psychologically going into that set, it does make you feel a little bit better. But like mm. you also said, it's not like a true one RM. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the, the difference being the, the level of fatigue that's induced, right? So the whole premise of po uh, you know activation prior to or post activation potentiation is is that you're then getting a performance increase for the following set whereas you know you're taking that that 1RM it's just going to vastly decrease the load that you can handle for subsequent sets after so it may actually affect your stimulatory volume for that particular session or for that particular week if you happen to run that like every week so if you're going to add, you know, it, it, by all, like I'm also, we're not here to say don't do one RMs because <laughs> if that's how you want to, then, then you are. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, if that's a goal for you, you want to improve your one RM back squat, deadlift, bench press, Hey, do it, just do it strategically. So it's probably not something that you need to do every day or every week. Mm. I think a lot of people aren't also doing traditional one RM movements anymore, or they yeah. aren't necessarily the best hypertrophy exercises for everyone like squat bench and dead like i for one aren't running any of those traditional variations yeah it's the exact same i pretty much i don't i haven't run probably any of those in a long time i think i ran bench maybe about half a year ago and i swapped it out for the incline another thing is i feel like the stimulus that you get from the amount of fatigue that you'll get from a true one 
one RM really isn't worth it. If your sole focus is that bodybuilding, like you get so much fatigue coming from a heavy one RM with nearly like no stimulus in the fact of like breaking down muscle tissue. Yeah. And on that note about stimulus, I think you also have to consider if you are actually performing a true one RM, like how are you going to need to move that load? Because if you go to a powerlifting meet, which people are doing, you know, at their max for one rep, they're not using the same form that a bodybuilder would use for that rep because there is just no way that you can squat as heavy as you can squat if you're going to try keep it all on your quads all the way down, ass to grass, full range, and then come back up. Same with a deadlift. If you're going to do a 1RM, you're probably going to be doing some sort of sumo or sumo hybrid stance. And, you know, with bench, your, your back's bending to, to 90 degrees, which we all know is super dangerous. And your um Well, it's not rounded, really, it's extended. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's true. That's completely safe then. Um, <laughs> and then your hands are like all the way out. So like if you watch powerlifters, you know, there's a reason why bodybuilders don't train that way. Like they're lifting that way because the goal is to move as much load as efficiently as possible, which, you know, it's pretty much kind of the inverse of, of bodybuilders. We want to move loads like pretty inefficiently because that's going to stimulate muscle tissue as much as it possibly can. So once again, yeah, just think about your goals. And if it really is all about muscle building, then you probably want to reconsider doing your one RMs. Mm. Speaking, actually, speaking of um, of one RMs and and powerlifting, I'm pretty sure the IPF put forth a rule now with their bench press where your your elbow actually has to go lower than your shoulder. Mm. So it's it's almost like a depth check because you know a lot of a lot of athletes who have quite favorable levers specific to let's say a bench press. Uh, they can get away with a you know, very, very wide grip with a large amount of thoracic, thoracic extension and therefore the range of motion is incredibly short. Whereas now like athletes are probably going to have to adjust something so that they can still get that elbow below the shoulder joint in that press. So in, I'm actually interested take? to know... What's that? Sorry. Can I have a hot take? Yeah. Like, especially when you see those like extremely arched bench presses who were just like contorting themselves to be in this like super bendy position. Like it, as far as I'm concerned, it almost like no longer becomes impressive because it's no longer relatable. Like mm. I feel like powerlifting is impressive because you can think, wow, that person is doing a bench press. Like I do a bench press, but they're doing it with like four times the weight that I could possibly do it with. But then like when you're seeing them move the bar an inch, even if it's, you know, within the rules or within the old rules, it, it's just not impressive anymore. It's kind of like watching a sport where you have no idea about the rules, no appreciation for the work that goes into it. You're kind of just sitting there like, well, what am I watching? I don't understand what's going on. And yeah, I just, I'm glad that they've implemented that rule because it was just getting to the point where it's like, you know, the most flexible person mm. who can just bend their body in a way to move the bar like two inches is going to win. And it's just like, what are we watching? Like, this is crazy. That's probably your average, like a bystander in a bodybuilding competition that doesn't know what they're looking 100%. at. What the hell am yeah. I looking at? What are, what they, are, what are they trying here? to judge here? Like, what are they? yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Less, less relatable. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, like you said, less, less impressive, I think as well, even though it's still within the rules at the time. I don't know what they're going to do in regards to like previous records when it comes to bench press and things like that, because you know, obviously if, if the range has to be greater now for some athletes, their numbers might potentially be less. So what happens to the world records and all that sort of stuff if, if the rules change? 
how do people strive towards hitting those records where the range was much less? Also, what if they physically have like, because I know some powerlifters are quite beefy. Like what if they're so beefy that they they literally can't get their elbows below the... What are you uh, calling them? <laughs> just say it. No, I'm just... <laughs> Bigger you than can't, DY, he's a calling them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but I was I was actually um looking at a video that was pretty much breaking down a bunch of like he's a he's a known powerlifter, very good, and he coaches a lot of powerlifting clients, and he was pretty much breaking down a large majority of the people that do have world records, and they pretty much were all meeting that requirement anyway. Like, sure, there might be some under seventy two year old uh, under seventy two kilo guy or somewhere that might have a huge power powerlifting arch that might have a record previously but a majority of the big guys that were actually pressing large amounts of load were pretty much meeting those requirements anyway which was what the video was showing he showed like a bunch of different uh world records that were already held with their form videos and everything like that and they were pretty much ticking the boxes anyway so i think it might have been just a very small like minority of the overarches i guess that were affected Mm, that's true yeah do you think that rule should have been implemented a long time ago, though? Can you look at it? Well, like like anything, it's you, you know you don't know it's going to be an issue until someone tries it is within the rules, and they go, oh well, mm. now there's always advantage. Yeah. when it's you saw like, that rule uh, rule pop up, were you like, eh, to be honest, kind of fair, and I it should have been there, or oh, were you like, to be fair, mate, like I'm not exactly just like searching powerlifting forums and yeah. waiting to see what the IPF updates like. I would. Pretty much, I don't think I could even say I'm a powerlifting fan. Like, I think it's really cool. And I think, like, they're amazing athletes, but I, I don't keep a close eye on it. It was just something that popped up. I think I heard about it on maybe Eric. I was talking about it on Iron Culture. Maybe he mentioned mm, it. I think that's where I heard about it as well. Yeah. But it's kind of like in the NBA. Like, there's been certain players that have been able to crack the system in a way. So, like, James Harden, who used to play for... Brooklyn, he plays for Philly now. He was basically just the king of getting fouled because he would invite the contact, wait for the contact, shoot. And, you know, he's shooting like 20 free throws a game. So now the league are trying to be a little bit more discerning and allow for a bit more contact so that it doesn't just turn into a game where we're watching guys shoot free throws. It's a little bit more free-flowing. So I think like any sport, there's going to be people who are savvy enough to not you break the rules, but bend them as much as they can. Mm. And if that is resulting in like a worse end product for the viewers and the spectators, then obviously the organizations are going to do their best to improve that spectacle. And if it means changing some rules, then I think it's a good thing for any sport. Mm. And I think like, like you said, any, any sport goes through that, right? Like I remember even when I was swimming as a, as a kid and I'd go to States and everything like that. And you'd invest in in the best possible like streamlined trunks that would go from like the waist down to like the foot makes you more streamlined in the water. And I think eventually they started to ban certain types of uh, swimwear because of its buoyancy and it would only you know, improve your likeliness of being faster. So it was like a real advantage to the athletes that could get, you know, top, top money and towards spending on these, these things. So I think they, they pretty much banned a lot of them to, to mm. prevent that. So I guess I as technology improves over the, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Olympics, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Speedos so. don't do the trick anymore, do they? The budgie smugglers. DTs, mate. They're just, yeah. I, I think they, they're the most, yeah. They've just left it for us bodybuilders. They're like, hey, you guys can have these. I don't know. They're pretty streamlined. What do you think? <laughs> well, it's, like, yeah. it's like the first bodybuilder. He was like, you know, sometime in the 60s, he was like, it's got to be a better way to do this. I'm going to start taking just something Jeez, that they thanks. are sticking in the horses. I'm just going to put that in me and see what happens. 
Let's see if I get as jacked as everyone else. Fell and tripped over on a needle. He's got jacked the next day. What the fuck? <laughs> that happened to DY over the weekend. Yeah. Oh, no. yeah. Some dude was trying to jab up in the gym, missed himself, hit hit DY. Yeah, hit me and in now the he's back. And now I'm yeah, I can't even see his neck. What's going on? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm losing hair as we speak, dude. <laughs> oh, but just quietly on the um, topic of losing hair. I was like looking over, um, Gemma had her phone and she showed me this filter on Snapchat, like makes you bald. Bruh, we better hope not, boys. It's not looking good. <laughs> the ears would awfully be prominent without any the, hair, uh, I'll tell you that. Yeah, we can put it as the picture episode because, yeah, hot damn, we better hope we hang on to something. If not, I could be making a trip to, where is it, Turkey and get those hair implants? Yeah. See if is that, that a real thing? The podcast. That's a real thing. Mm. Yeah, I think they yeah. actually do it over there. And like, it's looking very promising. Big- yeah. If you a big profile, they generally pay for you because I think like Ian Valier was going to go to Turkey and get it done for free. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump, look how good his hair, his hair looks. Bro, <laughs> <fire>. raccoon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on the topic of the one RMs, uh, I know DC wanted to bring up a topic of uh, I guess extremely high volume training alongside that, and like the impact that could then have on training performance. Do you want to go over a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. So we did actually have a question about uh, certain types of training methods centered around really, really high volumes. And one of the first things that comes to mind is like GVT, like German volume training, which I'm sure some of the the listeners might've either run themselves or they've seen others run or they've heard about before, but essentially it's this protocol around like 10 sets of 10 being superior for muscular strength and and muscular hypertrophy, sorry. Um, and the evidence just doesn't really seem to, to highlight that as being, being beneficial. And I'm somewhat skeptical about a protocol that just sort of mimics its, its sets and, and reps, like it's at a convenience, you know what I mean? Like what's magical about 10 by 10, why isn't it nine by nine or 20 by 20 or, <laughs> or three by three, you know what I mean? So I am somewhat skeptical initially just from the premise that, okay, this, this is, you know, a superior way of training. But there was also a study done in 2018, I believe, and it was basically coined uh, the effects of 12-week modified German volume training program on muscle strength and hypertrophy, uh, a pilot study. And yeah, it, it, just, it found no, no benefit to performing excessively high volumes in relation to uh, muscular hypertrophy and strength. So, you know, although it's, it's one study, I feel as though it doesn't take a lot to recognize the the down the downfalls or the cons to it performing excessively high volumes what do you boys think yeah i agree i think the same goes for even just very high volume training like maybe five or six sets of particular exercises like i'm sure we're all familiar with the term junk volume which i think i don't know who coined that maybe it was steve or or mike isretel but essentially the the more sets you do of a given exercise typically you are going to hit a point whether that's for certain people, like for me, and might, that might be set three. For other people, it might be set four. Um, but the, the quality of that movement is going to decline over time, and you're going to get less and less out of it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Is sort of like, you know, what are you getting out of that tenth set? Like, if you're training to any sort of intensity in the previous nine, which even that in itself sounds absolutely ludicrous to say out loud. Like, you really have to ask yourself, like what are you doing that's of any value in this last five sets? Like, to be fair, 
And I think the other thing, you know, just from more of like a, once again, like an injury management perspective, like say that you were signing on with a coach who takes this really high volume approach and you're getting given 10 sets of things like squats or, you know, leg press, pendulum squat, hacks. You got to think about, you know, that volume and that really acute spike in volume is really like a recipe for some of these overuse injuries to pop up. So like the classic is, you know, people go gung-ho, they get in the gym, they go from doing nothing to then they're doing, you know, 20 sets of quads a week or whatever. And then, you know, and a month down the line, they're wondering why their knees hurt. So if you do want to try a high volume approach like that for some reason, then I would at least say try and spend a longer period of time increasing that volume gradually, maybe adding a set each week as you go. Because if you try and ramp it up all the way up to 10 in one go, you're just pretty much asking for some sort of niggle to come on, particularly in the tendons, because they just, they have a homeostasis they quite enjoy. And if we push too much above that, they tend to get a bit unhappy. So I think that's worth considering as well. Mm. And we're always, I guess, taught within strength conditioning that the best, the best approach to improving someone's volume capacity is a graded exposure, right? So just like you've touched upon going from, you know, getting a new client or an athlete who usually runs, let's say two to three sets or three to four sets per per exercise. And suddenly you're asking for 10 by 10 on, on your exercises. That's a huge jump in volume. And also how long are you going to spend in the gym? Like, how is that also practical? I mean, people have jobs, they hold down jobs. They have got maybe an hour, hour and a half to train. Not everybody has three hours in their day to sit in the gym and, and, and perform 10 by 10 across five, six movements. So from a practical perspective, I don't think it's, it's the best approach. Yeah, I also want to know how how high quality the performance is in the training session if you're being able to hit the exact same weight for the whole 10 sets for 10 reps. Like, no, I don't know about you guys, but like the first set of a high intensity exercise, let's say like leg press, if I push it in close to that, like one, two RIR, like normally I get a rep drop off at least on that second set. Like if I do 15 reps, chances are the second set, if it was very close to failure, it's going to be down to like 13. I remember even looking at like some of Mike's training logs and he'll do like 20 reps on the first set. And then the second set, it's like 13 reps. And then the set after it's like 10. So it's like, if you have zero drop off the entire way through your GBT training, it's like, how hard were you really training on those first couple of sets? If you're able to maintain that load the entire way through for 10 reps. Absolutely. Like how another, stimulatory actually were they? Yeah. <laughs> those how, first how five, six sets, right? Yeah. Cause I know the last couple, yeah, they get rough. I, I, I did it once ages ago, obviously my high school days. And like, you, you couldn't walk for a week, but like how hard were the first couple of sets? They weren't really that hard. And then it really did creep up. So how, how much did I actually get out of those first couple of sets? Probably not mm. much at all. I guess a big part of it too, is like, what exercises are you selecting this on? Is it just everything? Because 10 by 10 on a, on a conventional deadlift is going to look a whole lot different to 10 by 10, doing a glute kickback or a frog pump or something like that. Right. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's also going to depend on what the movement is, but I just, I feel like it's just junk volume. I feel like it's a bit of a fad way to diet to be a fad way to train, to be honest. I'll go as far as saying that. Yeah. And I think like, especially if we think about it, you know, in the instance, and of course we're not going to mention any names, but it's like, okay, we have X coach and this is their method. And, you know, maybe they've had some good results. Like you just need to think to yourself, like as with so many things, it's very unlikely that one person has the secret. 
whether it's a special diet or a special training program or on the enhanced realm, like a special drug protocol, like you've got so many people in the world who have studied this stuff and have really invested a lot of time to become pretty good. So the chances of one coach in the industry having the best training program is pretty much zilch. So like, I mean, the three guys on this podcast, all fantastic coaches, people like Joey Cantlin, you know, Tierra, BK, Damo, Cheza, like all these fantastic coaches in the industry. I'm sure if you looked at their training programs, all probably quite similar. And I'm sure it's quite similar from a nutritional perspective as well. So just because you see these like outlandish training programs, you're like, wow, that's super different. Look how much extra work I'm doing. I'm doing so much more work than more people. It's not going to mean that you're going to have all these great results because think of all the other people who are getting excellent results, just sticking to the basics. And I think that applies to so many things, but just yet again, like don't get sucked into these flashy, sexy sounding programs because the reality is, is that the basics are what are going to net you 99% of your progress. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, very true. Very nicely said. Next question, natural bodybuilding goat, the greatest of all times. Now, I know DC has probably a large majority of top quality bodybuilders in his archive, natural bodybuilding. Who would your goat be? Followed it for a long time. Sure, there's... Yeah, I mean, he's a bit of a student of the game, isn't he? Yeah, he is. The, the person who really sticks out to me, and this is more so like a recent athlete, is Mashak. Like, I feel like his physique is unmatched as of as of recently. Um, I don't know, man. That video I saw, it was neck and neck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could not tell a clear winner. I couldn't split him. him. I nah, couldn't split him. Joint not. first. Yeah, 100%. I feel like every athlete up there was just the same caliber of athlete for sure. Yeah tell the sarcasm in, in our, in our voices right now, but um, yeah, no, I think Mashak has an incredible, incredible physique. I don't know how he could be beaten on stage, to be honest. Not, there's no one that comes to mind um, on within the natural realm right now that I think would, would, would win against him on stage. So I think he is the goat for this era at the moment, but yeah. What, what do you guys think? I think I seeing like a prime time Doug Miller against Mashak would be mm -hmm. like, the showdown of the century because those are like because that's the thing like natty's like we know we can get absolutely inside out peeled and you know you see the brian whitakers and you know guys like marshall johnson and um philip ricardo who are known for getting in just disgustingly lean conditioning but we don't have as many guys who have that real big bubbly round muscle so like Mishak, mm -hmm. doug miller babakar siobhan cunningham uh kendall who won worlds a while back who's the other big guy from the uk uh sam watt i don't know if you see him he's a super strong powerlifter as well mm, okay yeah, yeah so like those are the guys who stand out to me is just having mm. these like really big bubbly physiques yes and yeah, i just think like i think to be honest maybe brian whitaker probably stands out as the one instance where the guy who was just inside out peeled won when he beat because i think he was on stage with a few of those names and, and he was the victor but mm. so often you see that the bigger guy is just going to win it um like babakar for example mm. it just insane um like the x frame but i i think that i would probably have to say doug miller maybe babakar those mm. are probably two of my favorites um but i also agree with you dc like meshack is frankly probably not even human at this rate like it's just mental mm, we were talking like, about him at dinner the other night like his arms are so big it doesn't make sense 
I think the other thing we need to consider though is like we've never compared these guys side to side. So like mm. Shaq, Babakar, um, Doug, like oh actually, do you know what I'm forgetting? Jim Cordova. Jim Cordova, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, He's got an man. epic video of him doing oh, a, a show um, on YouTube, and even just his routine looks looks phenomenal. But yeah, he's, a, he's an amazing athlete as well. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, but, <laughs> Ronnie Coleman, fucking that's Ronnie. Yeah. How good, bro? Yeah, goat, man. <laughs> well, what about you, Jack? Who would you go? Yeah, I just, it's a tough one because I don't really. Re- I've seen some crazy physiques on on Instagram, like Babakar and Mashak, but like. I struggle to resonate with them personally when I haven't seen them in person. Hmm. So like it's I would I would have to pick one of those two probably in terms of the most impressive that I've seen on social media. But I think it's a whole nother ball game once you see them in person and you can visualize them a bit better. See, for me, three names pretty much like come to mind. It would be like Babakar, Meshach, and probably Doug Miller would probably be like the t- the three guys that just look absolutely unreal and are probably like, in my opinion, probably ahead of the game and all on the same level. Like them at their peak are just like undeniably good. And it's hard because you've never actually seen all three of them going together. That's mm-hmm. crazy because like, you've got like what, like what you were saying, like Brian Whitaker and all that. The only thing is Mishak is I think very small. So mm-hmm. it would be interesting when you put him next to like Babaka at like on stage at like a WMBF or something you know, seeing how it actually played out, like if there's like a head and a half difference between the two and probably like 20 kilos mm. on stage. Mm, absolutely. Even um, the the guy that recently won the BNBF, um, David, David, David K, yeah, he has a very impressive physique. So it'd be interesting to see what, what some of these shorter guys look like next to him because obviously he's a very large competitor. He, he looks like he'd be six foot or something along those lines, right? Just from just from the images, and I mean, mm. Instagram. It's hard to tell exactly how how large these individuals are, how tall they are, short they are, etc. But um, he has a very impressive physique as well. So, you guys see this rear shot on Natty News Daily? That's or- nuts, man. Yeah, yeah I saw that. Yeah. Today. I think AJ that? shared that. Hey, I was like, what in mm. the world is that? I think he's German, so I'll butcher his name. But it's like Patrick underscore underscore Tuch T E U T S C H. were you not at wmbf worlds to see babakar i saw babakar but he didn't compete that year so Uh kendall was the actual guy that won um that year i saw babakar in like the audience and he was like watching and i was like i actually i actually asked him i was like you're not competing this year and he was like no he's oh you've met babakar yeah you know me oh, and him, we, we go way back we're pretty much best mates now like you know like was he massive he was wearing like you know what's his uh his team jersey like the la forza um oh, i think that's yeah. his like team and he was wearing like a full jersey and he just he filled the thing out put it like that the thing was stretching all over the place yeah. but um yeah he, he's a big boy but i think he was doing the muscle mania worlds because he mm. ended up winning oh that was that year. so i think I'm not sure, but I think maybe if he did one, he might have sacrificed his pro card. Mm. And after already winning like multiple WMBF world titles, I think it was just like, well, I guess mm. I got nothing to prove here anymore. It's like, yeah. and if I compete again, I lose my maybe muscle mania pro card and then I might not be able to compete in the world. So mm. I think that's the reason why he didn't actually do that. Um, The show because he was there <laughs> i know he was peeled because i saw him one week later at the muscle mania show looking absolutely unreal and taking the title there well didn't babakar actually win his um 
is IFBB. Uh, IFBB Pro Card. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And stood up against um, oh my god, what's his name? Rolly Rolly Winkler. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, it looks so it, much better than him as it well. Looked, it looked comparable. Yeah. It was like, yeah. what? Oh, actually, that's a good point. On naturals that have their cards, what about Bob Waterhouse, who's got the classic? Oh, that's right. Yeah, he does. He's got a great card. physique, man. Like, yeah. he's got a really, really nice physique. Yeah. Do you know if he's still natural? I couldn't say for sure, but I assume so. Like, I think I listened uh, to him on Fuad's podcast, and it, it sounded like he was pretty intent on staying natty lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember seeing some photos and he made some absolutely insane improvements from his IFBB show. So, but then he didn't have it. I can't remember. I don't think he had anything in his bio. So I didn't know maybe if he took the jump now that he had the classic pro card. Either mm. way, he's still got an absolutely unreal physique. I think anyone that can win an IFBB pro card as a natty, like even like Iron Lord as well, won a BK. Yeah, Iron Lord won his classic, didn't he? Yeah. Classic. Oh, it's- and even, um, do you remember... There was a guy, Ryan Doris. Ryan Doris. Yeah, yeah I remember he Ryan Doris. He also has like yeah. a, um, like sort of like dreads. He looks yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah. And um, Sam Okunola. I know he doesn't really compete anymore, but he looked great in his heyday. He did, yeah. Even That's guys cool. like, I mean, and then you sort of think about just pure time of the game, like dudes like Jeff Alberts, Philip Ricardo Jr. Like, could you argue that- Even Kiyoshi Moody as well. Yeah, like could they sort Joel, of be the, the old man well. goats? Yeah. <laughs> Like the Dexter Jackson of the of the Natty League, like not necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, the top of the top, but have just won so many shows, like got so many titles between them for such a long time. Yeah, I don't know many bodybuilders that are natural though that actually have an opens IFBB pro card apart from Babaka. Like that's how impressive I guess he is. Like, like he didn't win like a classic physique IFBB pro card. He won like the full opens where there's like, you know, you need to win versing the heavyweights and everything, which is crazy. Um, I reckon there would have been guys who maybe won their card naturally who went on to become enhanced mm. potentially. Yeah. Apparently Ronnie was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, mate, yeah. Ronnie, Ronnie's apparently still natural now. So <laughs> who knows? I remember when Keon Prodigy or whatever it was pretty much claimed natural even on his first or some like Olympia debut. It was like, and then I don't know, he doesn't claim it anymore, but he looked huge. I don't know. He would be the biggest natty I've ever seen. I'll tell you that. Mm, and I'm pretty sure there's even like uh, pictures of Kai Green competing in like the WNBF mm. when he yeah, was, and back when he was natty, as well. natty as well. Sean Clarita, I think, actually won the lightweight world title. I think he uh, did, yeah. Yeah, and then he went on to the overall. I think he was versing Brian Whitaker. Bro, and imagine what he would have weighed Whitaker back when he was natural. 32 kilos. <laughs> <laughs> He's doubled in size at least. <laughs> All right, next question. Um, this one's submitted by uh, a listener as well. Pretty much a coach has fucked up the peak week. All right. Who, ta- who takes the blame here? It's like, it does the coach step forward and take the blame? Now, I just love how abrupt, is going abrupt that description was. It wasn't like a sugar, yeah, yeah. Like a sugar coating Absolutely or anything like that. fucked it. Like, you're looking like a water buffalo on stage. Now, now, what's the case? What do you think here, Jack? Oh, man. Well, I think the way you pose the question means there's only one answer. Like, the coach kind of has to take responsibility for that, especially if they've been... Uh, working with a client for X amount of weeks, like probably at least 20 weeks. And then they go and give them something in peak week, especially if it's not even their first show, like it could be their second or third show of the season. 
again, and again, we're not really, we're talking hypothetically here. We're not talking about anyone in particular, but I think to, to put something out there in terms of a protocol that's going to get such a drastic response, then yeah, I think uh, the coach's fault, they should take responsibility because it's mm -hmm. not a client, like the client, the client didn't set it. The, the Federation didn't set it. So do you just go over your peak week strategy with your clients at all? DC? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So typically we're talking about what peak week may look like within the last couple of weeks leading up to peak week itself. So just to get a little bit of, of uh, I guess, buy-in and also for the athlete to understand what they should expect. Um, so it's not just a complete spanner in the works. Oh, I thought I was doing this. It's to sort of build that buy-in over time. Um, but I... I mean, I guess when it comes to the premise of like whose fault is it, it's the answer is never black or white, is it? It's always in the gray. So, you know, I guess it, if it depends on, depends on if, if the, the coach put forth a protocol and then the athlete went off and ate off the protocol or ate off the plan and did their own thing, well then, you know, the, the, I feel like it's more, maybe potentially more the athletes, athletes problem in that mm -hmm. sense, but it also takes two to tango. So like the coach still needs to take responsibility for the athlete being off track. Why was that the case? Was there red flags prior to that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I also think that peak week should be minimally invasive. Like it should be something that you, you it leads up to it and you're well-equipped with the knowledge and understanding of what, what principles and recommendations you can put in place uh, that aren't going to completely just throw a spanner into the works. Like what are we trying to achieve here within a peak week? Well, it's to try and improve recovery, improve mindset, allow for glycogen restoration, improve hydration, mitigate fatigue. And then show day, show day itself is to, you know, acutely improve your look by manipulation of a few different variables. So, but you're not vastly manipulating these th things to extremes where it's going to cause some upset to the system. So if, if the coach is recommending vastly abstract recommendations that haven't perhaps been trialed leading up to the peak week itself, then I think it's the, uh, it's, it's the, it's the coach's responsibility to, to do the right thing. Mm. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, the one thing about it is like, I guess it depends on what the strategy is that the coach is implemented as well. If it's like, when you look at it in retrospect, like from another coach's point of view or from what the evidence says, like if, the strategy they put forward is just something that goes against completely everything that we know and all the scientific literature, then it's like, well, it's definitely the coach's fault. Like, let's say it's like 20 grams of carbs per kilo of body weight. And you do that for like five, five days. Like there's no doubt in my mind that nearly anyone would spill over that. Um, so it's like, it, it depends on what kind of things the coach is putting forward, but in a majority of the time, like if, if you fuck up the peak week and it, it's nearly on the coach majority of the time. Mm, I, like I remember seeing this was, I think a good sort of year ago or so it was an IFBB men's bodybuilder and the, the day before. So that I guess the, the one day out mark, he went and did like a 10 K calorie challenge. And, you know, I think that that's just outrageous. And like, who's, who, whose decision was that? Was it the coaches? Hey, let's do that. Or was it the athlete just, taking it upon themselves that, you know, that's something that they should do. So mm. <laughs> I think the other thing to consider as well is like from the coaches that I know, like 
or even or even any coach, I'd hope that it's within their good intentions to bring the athlete's best physique to stage. So it's not like the coach was purposely sabotaging the client. I would hope not. Um, so I think we also have to take that into account. Like potentially they just didn't make the right call for that particular peak week. Hopefully the coach learned from the incident and they they won't make that sort of mistake again. Again, speaking arbitrarily. One thing that I do, and I know that you boys probably do it too. I know BK does it is like chats to the athlete about the strategy that they're actually going to employ for the peak week with their client. So for me, when I give out my peak week to my client, I, I guess I kind of try and sell it to them. I'm like, you know, like we've done this amount of carbs before we've had this high day before. Um, and this is my strategy and reasoning behind it. And then maybe after that show, I'll be, I might be like, you know what? I think we could have been maybe a little bit sharper or maybe we could push the carbs a little bit more. So then I'll try and sell it to them again. So I was like, I guess it's not so much all on me, but we have like a collaborative approach. I'm like, you know what? If you want to keep this peak week that we just did, like that's completely fine. But I'm like, maybe we might be able to get you a little bit fuller. Are you happy to go in with it? Like for me, I did that with my uh, boy, Scotty, you know, I was saying like, I think we can get a little bit more carbs in. So we ended up pushing more carbs in and it worked out even better. And like, even though you might have a very good peak week, I don't think every peak week is going to come in a hundred percent, especially on your first peak week. I think there's always after that first peak, you have something to refine. You could be like, you know, I think I could bring you a little bit sharper, like what BK did with DC they were like you know what now that we're peaked this way I think we can be a little bit sharper and then manipulate it and then DC came in at absolutely like 200% for the Brisbane show Mm, yeah absolutely I almost think that it's it's safer to be somewhat more conservative with your peak week than to just be overly aggressive so uh, like say for example an athlete was to compete on a weekend it might be more more viable to do something along the lines of like a midweek load so you essentially load majority of your carbohydrates or a larger portion of your carbohydrates midweek. And those, that carbohydrates may, might taper down as you decrease step output and energy expenditure, you know, obviously because you're trying to allow for subsequent recovery. Um, so that might be a strategy where perhaps you, you're, you're, you're slightly flatter on the morning and then you have the ability to fill out more based on you know, upping carbohydrates that day. Whereas you can imagine the detriment to being spilled or just well and truly carved up to the point where you're yeah essentially spilling the the detriment there is that it's a lot harder to wash that away like you're gonna have to get your athlete up doing a pump up every 15 to 20 to 30 minutes to try and kind of like spend some of this some of this carbohydrates within the system so it's always easier to give back than it is to try and take away I honestly find it a little bit foreign if you're if if some coaches don't explain the peak week to their client like that's something I'm always, even if the client tells me, Hey, Jack, just, I don't care what the plan is. Just give it to me. I trust you, which some like a one particular client of mine does say, and I'm still going to explain it to him because I think that's super important for the coach to be able to explain why. Um, Cause that shows that they understand it too. Even mm. if like, it's also a good thing. Like even when I'm like looking at other coaches work, like everyone's going to have their point of differences as well. As long as they can, I guess, explain the reasoning behind what they're doing. I guess I kind of respect it in that aspect. So it's like, if someone goes, oh, this is what I'm doing for the peak week. Like, you know, it makes me respect it a lot more because he actually has reasoning behind it. So like what you're doing, explaining to your client, like this is what I'm going to do with the carbs here. I guess it puts a little bit more trust in you and be like, you know what? I do do appreciate this guy's like, you know, the way he's handling it and Mm. how about he's going with the peak week. Also gives you a little bit more confidence as a competitor. Mm, yeah and predictability is huge like we talked about right so hopefully through the entirety of your condos prep 
you and your coach are, are gathering information that you can use for, for peak week. So, you know, predicting your caloric maintenance, um, rate of loss, et cetera, grams per kilo of body weight with respect to protein, carbs, and fats. Uh, even in terms of leading up to, to peak week, you get an understanding of your, your caffeine intake. You'll also be getting an, an, an idea as to how much sodium you're consuming day to day. So that when you start to introduce these variables or perhaps remove them based on you know, where you're at within your peak, everything is predictable. You know, you know the desired outcome of adjusting A, B, C. I think we can all agree though that if your coach says, have a zinger box the night before the show. Don't fucking question them. Well, don't just do it. Like they have your best interests at heart. And if you look terrible, it's probably your fault. Yeah. yeah. The zinger box, it can do no wrong. I've never seen a negative result from consumption of Zinger burgers. And there's, there's no there's limit to them one. as well. With or without mayo though. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you're leading in the peak week, you cut the mayo. <laughs> That's, everyone knows that though. Cleans out the digestive system too. If you throw in a couple of wicked wings, you straight in, <laughs> straight out. You'll be looking nice and tight through that core. To be fair though, like that when you get to hit that show day poo in the morning and you're just like flat stomach, then you know, we're on boys. Let's go. <laughs> See, for me, I don't even think I had a show day like poo, but I restricted fiber like quite heavily on the back end. So it was like, there was nothing to shit out. Like it was all getting used up and I was as flat as the tack through the stomach. I'd love how the conversation just completely segues to something, something, something else. The listeners just in their car, just, wow, this is a great conversation. And something leads us down the pathway of taking shits on show day. Yeah. All right, sorry, guys and girls. <laughs> All right, all right. Next question: Raw or cooked weight for your food when you're tracking? Um, I guess mainly fruits, veggies, and protein. What, what's your go on this, Jack? Uh, I'm almost always raw. Don't think I've religiously weighed anything cooked. I think especially for grains and carb sources. Like if you're weighing it cooked, there's just so much fluctuation in the water content because, like, are you? especially like how much water do you cook it in? Like how long do you cook it for? That's going to affect the moisture content. And then do you refrigerate it overnight? That again is going to change it. Um, so yeah, it'll pretty much always be raw for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think Thanks the only me. utility of, of maybe cooking, or sorry, weighing it cooked would be perhaps if it wasn't measured out by yourself or perhaps like you're, you're, you're tracking it after sort of thing, or perhaps you're, you know, going in and, and eating out or something like that, that might be a, a, a strategy that you would utilize where you might change the, mm. the way in which you, you track it. But I think like you said, Jack, it's probably most consistent just to, to do it raw, like just track mm. it raw and therefore, yeah. Something I used to do is like, I would make up a huge batch of chicken. Sorry to interrupt you, DY. <laughs> um, but then I'd, I'd weigh it after cooking it. I don't know why you're smoking, Lawrence. I don't like it. But. Yeah, no, he's oh, smoking at me because you're saying raw, and now he's making me smirk looking back at him. No, I'm legit. Go like, up, Lawrence, I'm, come on. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. You I think I've got the uh, I've got the old afternoon sillies, boys. So just ignore me. <laughs> anyway, no, Dy, you can. I've I've had enough. Yeah. <laughs> The Not first more. time I've seen Jack pissed off. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my first ever prep, I actually did everything cooked weight. Um, it was something that I guess just like kind of slipped my mind. Like it was my first ever prep. I did, and I was like pretty much halfway through it. And I was like, shit, I should be probably weighing this all raw. But it was too late. And I didn't want to mix up 
stuff up like midway through prep, like especially on like those last 10 weeks where now I've now swapped all my food and now I'm weighing it all raw. So I pretty much kept like cooked weight the entire way through. But my last two preps, I did swap over to raw weight. And yeah, it, I know. I, th- I feel like as well, if you do weigh your stuff cooked, as long as you keep it extremely consistent, for me, all my meals were pretty much the same. So even if Joey said, hey, cut 10 grams of carbs and I cut them from all the cooked weight stuff, my food is still getting reduced. So I'm still getting pretty much nearly the same outcome. Now, when starting out and if you're like experimenting with all these different kinds of foods here and there, and then you're throwing raw weight here, cooked weight there, then it could probably be a little bit problematic, especially mm. on like that back end of prep. What if you're also adding some sort of like sauce or condiment or something like that to the cooking process? How do you then weigh it, weigh it cooked? Do you then like put it under the tap and get rid of the weight of the sauce onto it? So just weigh it like that. Like it just adds an extra layer of complexity, I feel. Yeah, it was definitely quite challenging. Um, a majority of mine was like rice, which is obviously probably a big one that can change between like how many grams of carbs you're getting. But uh, it was rice and chicken. Like, you know, how long you cook the chicken for? Like, you know, it's going to weigh less if you just keep roasting the shit out of it. Uh, <laughs> another thing is within prep, like, you know, you might have like rice and you might, you might want to add more water to it to make it a little bit more fluffy and a little bit more volume. But then it's going to then like, you know, it's going to weigh more because you've added more water. It's like, I don't know if you eat, when you eat oats, like, you know, you can add a, you can add a little bit of water or you can add a lot of water. And I know when I'm in prep, I'm adding shit loads of water to make them super volume, like heavy and like, yeah. So that, mm-hmm. that, it's like, you know, if you're weighing stuff like that, and then especially if you're using like, I guess like little prep cheat tactics where you're adding lots of water to your rice and oats and all that can definitely throw off the numbers. Mm. speaking of oats did you boys ever add any like zucchini or anything like that to your oats <laughs> no. uh, <laughs> one diet hack that i've never done yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Oats. I've never done I, like i never oats, i never did it either but it's it's actually a really common common volumization tactic that's that that competitors seem to utilize like zucchini or or carrot <laughs> they're making like carrot cake oats like carrot too. over the top of their oats that's when you know your food focus right when you're doing kind of weird shit to your oats in the morning the thing is i've noticed that a lot of the people that do it are normally the females and i don't know if that's like obvious calorie related because obviously the calories need to get a lot lower than what we do so then therefore like it gets depressing when you're eating 20 grams of straight oats or you can maybe add like you know 100 grams of zucchini and nearly make it look like what we would eat because like you know for me in prep i was thinking i was having about 80 grams every day for breakfast and it wasn't really that big of an issue but like if you're a female and your cows are on like that sub 14 1300 it's like it's going to be hard for you to get like a decent serving of oats mm, absolutely. and we all know in prep oats life it is life yeah so much so that competitors will like dream about opening a cafe or a restaurant or something <laughs> like that where they essentially sell you know, sell just, just oats. Like I've had a few athletes, uh, rumors. Talk, talk, <laughs> talk about their interests in potentially opening a restaurant dedicated what, to just, what's to the, just oats. What's the cutoff point for you, for you guys, like where you get to a point with your oats, whether it's such a shit or volume, like let's say 30 grams of raw oats that you just like, let's just mix it up and put in something else. Like for mm. me, it would probably be any anything less than 50 grams. And like, it's it's not worth me having oats. Mm, yeah, actually, there was a point in prep, I think in my in my run between tropics and Queenslands, or it might have even been just before 
tropics where I had to sub oats out because it was just too much carbs for the carbs that I was on. So I think, I think it was, I think it was getting down to about sort of 50 grams or 40 grams or something like that. Mm-hmm. Where I was like, I was looking at the bowl and it's just depressive. And I'm like, I just, I would rather just not eat it <laughs> to be honest. Mm. <laughs> rather but, eat a zucchini without yeah. the oats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For me, it was 60 grams, but I never let my, like my pre-workout meal was always the exact same every day. And it was 80 grams of oats, like hundred grams of berries, scoop and a half of protein powder and like a little bit of chocolate on top or peanut butter at the back end of prep. So it was like, I never really got down to 60 for my pre-workout meal, but I probably wouldn't go under 60. I remember having like a side dish of oats really deep into prep just because they like, oh, they're obviously life. So it's like, I threw in a second one. I think I only got like 60 grams. So it's like, shit, like by the time you cook the shit out of it, it's like, it, pr- it probably mm. isn't really worth it. You can probably get more out of like a salad or something like that. Mm. Some rock melon and strawberries. This is true prep yeah. talk here. How many <laughs> mils of water did you roughly add per gram of oats? Did you I don't s- think- I didn't do much oats in my last prep. And because I, I think, well, I got encountered that issue where I was like, this is nothing. Like, what am I going to bother with? I think I did a lot of like, I did Milo cereal for pre workout the whole way through. Oh, because that's and, so much more volume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you well, get way more volume <laughs> than that. It's actually not that bad, to be honest. I know you had a Milo cereal run, Jack. So it's actually mm, not I'm too bad. I'm still having it. Yeah. Yeah. But um, then I would sometimes have oats on like a refeed day where you can have like a proper bowl and do like, you know, 150 grams or something like that. And then you you look forward to those bowls in the off season while you're in prep and then they never come because it's just way too feeling. And you're like, oh, yeah. I mean, the notion of now having to like get down a bowl of oats that size, I could not. Yeah. I don't think I could even force it down too fair. It would just be a terrible time. It's funny because it's like really only a dieting thing. Like when you're trying to drop weight, you're like, wow, you know what? These oats are like absolutely God's gift. But when you're in a surplus, you're like, this was the shittest thing I've ever discussed. I, I- I swapped, out the, yeah, I swapped out the oats for cream of rice. So the cream of rice was my like off-season go-to pre-workout meal. Mm. But There's only like two people that care about oats, right? It's like, it's either a, a bodybuilder <laughs> 25 weeks into a, a contest prep or a physique athlete, or it's bloody 70-year-old Marge who's been enjoying <laughs> Uncle Toby goodness for the last, you know, 50 years or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll wrap this up on the final question here. Would you still track food if you just didn't compete? What about you, Jack? As a new, as a dietitian, would you still track your food? Mm, it's a good question. I'd like to think I wouldn't because I would enjoy not having to track it, to be honest. And I think I would be, I know I'm already quite good at intuitively eating and being able to maintain a certain body composition and I know how to eat well, so... And I also, I think I'm, my physiology is fairly good at regulating quite a comfortable body weight for me in terms, like when I get to, when my body fat creeps up, my appetite kind of pushes back quite drastically. And then when I get quite lean, I get quite hungry. So I I feel like I have quite a natural and good physiological range um, for my appetite. So yeah, I think, I think I would not track. I think it depends on maybe what, what, what tool we're using. Cause I think I would still, I mean, there has been times even within the last couple of weeks where there might be a day where I just don't track because I'm eating pretty, pretty much the same things mm-hmm. every day. So I kind of don't need to pull up my, my fitness pal and, and, and track it for that day because I, I tend to construct my meal plans based off like my sort of meal plan builder that I use with my coaching system. So 
I build myself a meal plan and I just kind of stick to it every day. I don't really need to track if I'm not, mm. if, if the variables are not going to be different. Uh, I can still collect all the data that I need in terms of body weight change and things like that. Um, I'm the same. But, like I'm literally just logging the same meal day to day. Yeah, 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 so exactly. I wouldn't even call that tracking really. It's just rinse yeah. and repeat. Like I have meals that are created in my fitness pal and it would just be a matter of pasting them in because it's the exact same. So I, if I, if I wasn't sort of dedicated within the, the physique sports, I still think I would do some sort of tracking in the sense of maybe weighing the foods that I, that I consume just to keep consistency amongst the portions that I have and just roughly to know how much I'm eating rather than just completely eyeballing it. So if I was to eat oats, I would probably go for like hundred grams, maybe 120 and if I wasn't tracking it diligently, I'd probably still want to know that I'm somewhere within that range. So I'd, I'd use like a scale for that. But I could see myself going a period of time where I don't necessarily diligently track because um, I think it's a tool in the toolbox, right? So it's not something that you need to adopt for the rest of your life. Uh, it's something that can help to build qualitative and quantitative nutritional literacy, but it's not something that you need to do for life. Even, even as a bodybuilder, I think, I think that there's, I mean, look at Alberto Nunez, right? <laughs> Who knows if he tracks even in his, even in his prep. So mm. you do, you do gain that knowledge to the point where perhaps you can implement certain foods uh, within your day that, that, you know, will, will meet your requirements because you've run that for so long. Yeah. I'd probably be the same. I don't, I don't think I would track, but I would definitely use a lot of the cues that tracking has taught me. Like, I think tracking your food definitely has so many like, rewards in terms of knowing what's in your food like it's helped me with meal timings and stuff like that too like prioritize prioritizing like carbohydrates around training i think i would carry all of those little aspects that i've learned from tracking my food and nutrition but i probably wouldn't actually track my food like i'd probably pick like a breakfast that i would still eat every day um i'd still do a lot of my healthy meal choices i guess in terms of like carbohydrates getting like four lots of protein in a day um, but in terms of actually tracking, if I didn't have a goal of pushing my physique further forward than what I am now, and like, I guess, really obsess about my training and nutrition, I, I probably wouldn't track. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be pretty similar to be honest. I think you guys have covered it nicely and it pretty much just comes back to like, you know, you, we would all still probably keep the same habits. Like we're all at the stage now where it's pretty intuitive to eat like a bodybuilder, have protein with every meal, have a carbohydrate source, you know, eat enough fruit and veg across the day. So I can't see that really changing, nor should it. You know, that's a, a good way to live. So I don't think it would would change unless there was a maybe a period where I wanted to drop some body weight and I felt like I needed, you know, just a little bit more quantifiable data to make sure I was actually putting myself in a deficit. Because um, obviously, you know, you might some people might struggle to do that intuitively. But I think, um, yeah, if I, once I stop competing, I, I intend to stop tracking and, and just sort of rely more on the habits that I would have built, um, which would have been for quite a long time by then. So, yeah. Very nice. I actually remember listening to the podcast of Alberto Nunez and he was like giving like a challenge, I guess, to like see how good your nutritional literacy is and how, how much you know your body and like can you diet without actually like tracking your macros. And it was like, it was an interesting thing. Cause I was like, you know what, like, could I do it? Like, you know, like I feel it would it'd be quite comfortable for me to do it, but it's just very interesting when you think about it. It's like, whoa, dieting without tracking your macros, is that actually possible? It was just something I guess I felt like it didn't really ever like click to me. Like, even though like I do practice a lot of it with my clients, I was like, I was like, oh, can I actually do that? Mm. Would you like, you often reflect, would I be at a disadvantage if I did versus if I, if I did track, right? Didn't track versus did. So 
yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I think it would be quite cool to actually run a prep without, without tracking just, just as like, oh, just God. as a means of like, uh, you know, assessing your own physique and, and how almost like running a case study for yourself, but it's a long time to dedicate towards, <laughs> towards jumping Maybe on stage. Shit. <laughs> yeah. I know Carl Weber did that, the, the physique coach. Yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm. Yeah. Well, there was, was a time a- when there wasn't tracking, right? So mm. <laughs> it can yeah. be done. I just want you to record that convo that you're going to have with BK when you tell him that you're not going to track your next prep though. And I want to see his reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he'll be like, Oh, that's fine, man. Because I'm going to track your prep. <laughs> yeah. 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 He's and I'm like, like, okay. Yeah. Cool. So how much did you eat? How many grams of chicken? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. 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 Cut the chicken back. Yeah. Very nice. I think we'll wrap that up here. Listeners. First of all, I want to thank you all for tuning in. Um, I'll be away personally for the next three weeks so these gents will take good care of you Um, if you haven't already please head over to your streaming platforms and hit us with a five star review thanks and catch you soon